0: Um, So, we're finishing the book of Colossians today, and we've been just kind of working our way through this letter from beginning to end and understanding uh, what Paul was trying to communicate to these first century believers in a city called Colossae. And now, as Paul is wrapping up this letter and getting to the conclusion, what we find him doing is basically giving a shout out to some of his partners in ministry, some of the people that he's working together with for the advance of the gospel. And he's also sending greetings to the church at Colossae, to these people uh, that he's writing to, and he's sending these greetings on behalf of his ministry team. Now, I'm really glad that Paul does this. I'm glad that he ends the Ministry is not done by a select few who are visible and obvious, but it's done by many different people, all working in concert, exercising their gifts, their abilities, the glory of God. This is why I've titled today's message, Ministry is a Team Effort. Ministry is a Team Effort. Now if you were to survey the New Testament, there would be a handful of characters, a handful of names that just stand out. They pop up all over the place. You probably know those names. And then there's a ton of other names of people that are, are kind of just in the background, names that are not all that familiar to us. Let's just run a little test this morning to see if this is true. I want you to go ahead and just raise your hand up if you, before, Kathy read this text today, if you were familiar with these names. And You got to be honest, you're in church. So hand up if, yes, I knew this name before. Hank, why is your hand up? I haven't even given you a name yet. <laughs> um, hand up if you've heard this name before today and then drop it if you haven't. So let's, let's do a little experiment here. Paul, Peter. Mary. Martha. James. John. Okay, most of the hands are up in this room, that's awesome. How about these names? Tychicus. Onesimus. Aristarchus. Epaphras. Demas. Kanye. Okay. (laughs) That's not in the New Testament. But some people were like, you know what? That is really familiar, actually. Yeah, I'm going to go for that one. No, but the point is there's a lot of these characters, right, that we're sitting here thinking, I don't know that name. I'm not familiar with that name. I've never heard of it before. But we need to understand that the ministry in the Bible and ministry in the church today is done, again, by a whole range of people, not just obvious people, or people that are a little bit more uh, seen or visible. When you walk into a church that is having real gospel impact, sure, you might see a few people leading from the stage, but there are countless people who are working together, utilizing their gifts in the church and outside of the church to have gospel and kingdom impact in the community. An old mentor of mine used to say that ministry is like an iceberg. When you see an iceberg, they tell us that you're actually only seeing about 10% of it. Because the other 90% is under water. And so ministry requires a team of people. And the Apostle Paul here has a ministry team, which is actually quite amazing. What I want to do with our time this morning is I just want to give us five observations about ministry and about Paul's ministry team in this conclusion in the book of Colossians to help us better understand what ministry requires. So I'm going to start with the point that I've been making thus far, namely that ministry requires a team. That's the first observation. Paul just rattles off all these names of people that he's working with and that he's thankful for. So ministry requires a team of people. Now, if ever there was a guy, who could just kind of go at it alone and accomplish the Great Commission single-handedly, you'd probably think it was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, from a spiritual standpoint, was sort of a jack-of-all-trades, kind of a do-it-yourself kind of a guy. He was a self-starter. He was tireless, and he was insanely gifted. He was a guy who was a gifted evangelist, He was an ultra-successful missionary and church planner. He was an apologist who defended the Christian faith from false teachers and from heresy. He was a first-rate theologian who is credited with writing 2 thirds of the New Testament. He was a miracle worker. He was a healer. He was a persuasive preacher, and he possessed countless spiritual gifts. So again, if there was anybody who you would think could just kind of do this thing on his own, doesn't really need other people to participate, it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet, remarkably, for Paul, just like for the rest of us, he needed a team of people who were working together in order for the gospel to advance, which is awesome. God has not designed the church in such a way that it can accomplish its mission through one person. Instead the Bible teaches that God has given every single Christian, every person who is filled with the Holy Spirit, God has given you certain talents and skills. He's wired you a certain way and he's given you spiritual gifts that are intended to be used in cooperation with every other Christian in the church for the kingdom of God. Paul talks about this in numerous places. Romans 12 is one famous passage. Paul here is going to use a metaphor of the human body that he uses also in Corinthians to talk about the church. And the the idea is that the human body has all these different members, all these different parts that all work in concert together to allow the body to do what it's supposed to do. And Paul applies that kind of metaphor to the church and here's how he talks about it in Romans. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul there is talking about how everybody is a part of this body. We're all different members. And he talks there about a range of spiritual gifts that are distributed by the Holy Spirit among the Christian community. We're all called to ministry. We're all called to contribute to the work of the gospel. So we as Christians need to look at the church. And we need to look at our broader community that we live in. And we we need to ask ourselves, what are the needs? And try to identify those. And then we need to look introspectively and say, how has God wired me? Where can I step up? How can I serve? How can I leverage the things that God has given me for the gospel and for God's kingdom? Now, it's remarkable to me how diverse the group of people at the end of Colossians are and how diverse their gift set is or how diverse the things that they contribute to the ministry is. And so I want to spend a few minutes just walking through this text and and just helping all of us to see the incredible diversity that is on display here in Colossians. Because again, I think we have a pretty limited sometimes view of what it means to serve in ministry or the different ways that you can serve in ministry but that is just not the case so we're going to spend a few minutes here just walking through the text and I want to show you this level of diversity let's start again at verse 7. Paul writes this he says Tychicus will tell you all about my activities he is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, you and I take for granted the postal service and FedEx and UPS. And we really take advantage of uh, or, or just take for granted, I should say, text message, mes- messaging and email. In the ancient world, if you wanted to get correspondence to another person, you had to like figure out how to get it there. You had to take your parcel or your letter and just give it to somebody else who was traveling to that community and say, hey, when you get there, can you go to the, this place and find this person for me and drop this thing off? Today, again, we just go, oh, I want to send this thing out. And you just slap a shipping label on it and just stick it in your mailbox and put the flag up. And it's just done. You don't have to think about it anymore. What we see here is that uh, Tychicus and Onesimus are functioning as couriers for the Apostle Paul. He's written this letter and he's also got some verbal encouragement that he wants to share. But he's in prison in Rome. He's on house arrest. So Paul can't get the correspondence back to Colossae. But he sends these two as messengers who are going to go and they're going to deliver this letter and another letter and encourage the church there. You could could kind of put it this way that these two individuals were in charge of ministry communications. They were taking the communication from the Apostle Paul and they were spreading that. They were taking that over to these churches and bringing the communication that he was trying to send to them. So they're handling ministry communications. Not only that, we see that they're exercising the gift of encouragement. Paul writes that he may encourage your hearts. In that Romans passage, we saw that there is the the gift of exhortation or encouragement. These two men are going to go and they're going to operate in that gift. They're going to show up in Colossae and they are there to deliver this letter and they're there to encourage the hearts of the believers. Also of significance, Onesimus is a runaway slave who likely got converted through the ministry of Paul and is now being sent back to Colossae And so this is a man who is serving in ministry, who is from the bottom socioeconomic rung. So let's move into verses 10 and 11 and let's add to this now. He goes on and he writes this in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice... These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice are the only Jews that are a part of Paul's ministry team at this point. We know that because he says this. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. That was shorthand for they're Jewish. They're men of the circumcision. And so these men are Jews, and they're working in concert with a bunch of Gentiles, or a bunch of non-Jews, for the work of the ministry. Now, we already saw with Onesimus that this ministry team was diverse socially and economically, but now we see that the church is also racially and ethnically diverse, too. You have Jews and Gentiles, people from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and races, all working together in the ministry for the kingdom of God. Let's continue. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, who is this Epaphras? If you've been here with us through Colossians, you might remember that back in chapter 1, we learned that this is the guy who actually planted the church in Colossae to begin with. We read this in chapter 1 of this letter, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that all the saints, because of the hope we have for you in heaven." So now we've got this man that Paul is including here who is an evangelist. He was a church planter. And now we also see he's a prayer warrior, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. But Paul writes, he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Let's continue. Verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Pause there. Luke, we learn here, is a doctor. He's a physician. We also know that Luke is a historian of the church. We also know that Luke is an author of parts of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the Book of Acts. And so now add those gifts into the mix. You have a man who is doing ministries of mercy because he's a doctor. He's probably caring for the sick. He's a man who's doing historical research for the church. And he's a man who's doing some content creation for the church. He's writing parts of the New Testament. Moving into verse 15, give greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Pause. Paul brings up Nympha. Two things we need to make note of about Nympha. First is that Nympha is a woman. So we've already seen that among this ministry team, there's diversity socially and economically. We've seen that there's diversity ethnically and racially. Now we even see that there's gender diversity, that there are men and women who are serving the Lord together, using their gifts for this common purpose. The second thing about Nympha that stands out is that she's a woman of means. We know that because she is hosting the church gathering in her home. When the church was in its infancy, there were no buildings like this that were designated as churches. They had no need for them to be quite honest because churches were so small. But what would happen in all of these cities as churches sprang up is that those who got saved and were people of means and had large enough homes that they could actually host the church gathering would do so. And so this woman, Nympha, is a woman of means and she's opening her home for the church at Laodicea, and that's where these people gather to worship Jesus on a regular basis. So we see her exercising her gifts of generosity, the gift of hospitality, and presumably leadership by hosting a church in her home. Finally, in verses 16 and 17, we read this, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now scholars are not sure exactly who Archippus is. But they know that he was called to ministry. A lot of them believe that he was either a pastor in Colossae or Laodicea. Or that he served in some other ministry leadership role. One last person I do want to point out who's not here at the end of Colossians is a man named Timothy. In Colossians 1.1, we find Timothy written about there at the very beginning of this letter. Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is also a part of this ministry team. Timothy was a missionary with Paul, and Timothy was a man who's going to be installed as a very young pastor over the church at Ephesus. So let's tie all of these things together. The church is socially and economically diverse. It's racially and ethnically diverse. It's diverse with regard to gender. And now we even see that there's generational diversity because Timothy is a young man who is serving in ministry. So young and old are serving the Lord together. So what do we have here as we think about the church at Colossae and what Paul writes here at the end. What we have is we have a network of three house churches, one in Colossae, one in Laodicea, and one in Hierapolis. So a network of three house churches that are bursting with spiritual life. These are new, vibrant, dynamic communities of faith. And we also find that the group of individuals that are participating in this work to make it a reality, are incredibly diverse. There are Jews and Gentiles and men and women and young and old and rich and poor, all leveraging whatever God has given to them for the work of the gospel. And what gifts do they bring to the table? I'm going to put them on the screen for you here. And this is not exhaustive, but Paul is a missional strategist, A theologian, an evangelist, and a preacher. Luke engages in ministries of mercy, historical research, and content creation for the church. Epaphras does the work of evangelism, church planting, and is a prayer warrior. Nympha operates with the gifts of hospitality, generosity, and administrative leadership within the church. Tychicus and Onesimus handle communications between the faith communities and exercise the gift of exhortation or encouragement. And Timothy functions as a missionary and a pastor teacher. Ministry requires a team. And guess what? The day you say yes to Jesus, you get a jersey. You're added to the team. And so, some questions that you and I need to ask ourselves are, where can i serve within the body of christ what am i doing now to contribute to the work of the ministry what am i doing to further the cause of christ in this city in my time it's been well said no one can do everything but everyone can do something right and so we have a responsibility again to say lord what are the needs Okay, Lord, what have you given me? And then say, yes, Lord, I want to step up and fill these needs. I want to have impact. Okay, we were spending the vast majority of our time there today. But now I want to walk you through four more observations that we have in this text. Number two, ministry is centered on the gospel. Ministry is centered on the gospel. Ministry is not centered... Operating word here being centered. Ministry is not centered on social issues like poverty or education or health care. Ministry is not centered on political issues like taxation rates, border security, or, or election integrity. Ministry is centered on the gospel. As a church... As Christians, we can never, ever, ever afford to lose sight of that. And the reason why that is, is because the gospel is the message that tells about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues sinners. So that they can be forgiven of their sins and they can experience true life, fullness of life, eternal life in the love of God. So as important as every other issue is, and the church has a place to speak to all of those issues. As important as all of those things are, none of those things are central. Ministry is centered on the gospel. Jesus is the only hope that people have of knowing God experiencing God's forgiveness and enjoying the love of God it's been said this way Jesus is the best thing we have going for us so we should play that card every chance we get okay Jesus is the best thing we've got going for us there are so many other organizations and groups and government agencies that help out in other ways and that's great and we want to partner with things that are blessing people out there. But the one thing that we've got that nobody else has, and it's the one thing that matters more than anything else does, is Jesus. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ministry that we have been called to is centered on that gospel. Now, you might be asking yourself, where are you getting that from in this text? Like, I don't see the word gospel in this text. Is this just because you're one of those, like, really... Gospel passionate kind of guys, and you just stuck it in here. No, where I get this from, this text is here. Check out verse eighteen. Paul says this. He says, "Remember my chains." Also, notice in verse ten, he says, "Aristarchus, my fellow, greets you." Paul and Aristarchus, and maybe others, are imprisoned in, in Rome as they write this letter. Now, what does Paul's imprisonment have to do with the gospel? Answer, the gospel is the reason that Paul is in prison. Paul did not go to prison for petty theft. Okay, Paul did not go to prison for tax evasion. Paul went to prison because he was preaching the disruptive, countercultural message of the gospel. We saw last week in verse three. Is this cutting in and out on me? It is, huh? Thank God I have a loud voice because if this thing goes out I'm just going to keep on shouting. But here we go, Colossians 4:3. Here's what we saw last week. Paul said this, "At the same time pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison." So it was because he was declaring the mystery of Christ, which we talked about last week, means the gospel. It was because he was preaching the gospel that he found himself in prison. So Paul and his team were focused, laser focused, on the gospel. They were focused on sharing that message and seeing people come to know Jesus and experience life in him. And they were focused on seeing people who who had received Jesus growing in their understanding of the gospel and allowing the good news of the gospel to transform them into the image of Christ. In fact, family, that's what this entire letter has been about. Paul helping these Christians to know the gospel and to understand how the gospel should reshape them in the image of their creator. We saw that back in chapter 3. There are lots of good things that Christians can and should do. Feed the hungry. Care for the sick. Welcome the immigrant. I could go on. But the great thing that we can and should do is give people Jesus. Is this true of your life? Is, is this the focus of your life? Is it the gospel? Is it wanting to share that message with people? Not in annoying, combative ways. No, we learned last week about how to healthily do that. But is that the passion of your life? That right now you look at the relationships around you, you look at our community and all of its brokenness and all of its issues and say to yourself, man, if they just knew Jesus, Jesus would change everything in that person and Jesus would start to correct all that is wrong right now. And I want to tell them, is that the focus of your life? Is that the focus of your ministry? Ministry is centered on the gospel. Observation number three, moving along here, ministry requires earnest prayer. Where was I most convicted this last week preparing this sermon? Observation number three ministry requires earnest prayer. Look again at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling, if you write in your Bible, you should underline or circle that word always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. As I already mentioned, Epaphras is the man who planted this church in Colossae. Epaphras likely got converted through Paul's preaching in a neighboring town called Ephesus, and after he got converted, he was so fired up about Jesus and about what the Holy Spirit was doing in his life, he went back home to Colossae and just started telling people. And as he started telling people, God used him to reach people, and people got saved. And when they got saved and put their faith in Jesus, a tiny little church was formed there, the church at Colossae. And this little church was near and dear to Epaphras' heart. He loved them. He cared for them like a shepherd cares sheep and as Paul concludes this letter he writes to his friends in Colossae that he's never met he just wants to encourage them and say I want you to know how much Epaphras loves you and I want you to know how much he cares for you I want you to know that he struggles for you in his prayers this word struggling uh, some of your translations might put it this way laboring or even wrestling it's a Greek word that we get the English word agonize from. That he was agonizing in prayer for these new believers. In fact, it's the same word that is used to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus knew that his betrayer was at hand. Jesus knew that the cross was before him. And Jesus is in the garden the night before the crucifixion. And he is praying and he is agonizing in prayer. And Luke's gospel actually says that he was agonizing so much in prayer that he, he sweat great drops of blood, as it were. And now Paul uses that same word to describe the way that this man, Epaphras, has been praying for the church and for these believers and for the work of the gospel in Colossae. So this is intense earnest, concerned, heartfelt prayer. This is the kind of prayer that says, God, I am not going away until I see your power at work. I'm just going to keep crying out and begging and asking you to move to do something here, to work in this situation, and I'm just not going away. He's agonizing in prayer. No wonder God did a work in Colossae. No wonder this church was formed there and people were being saved. Paul, Epaphras, and the other Christians that were with them were going to battle, so to speak, on their knees consistently before the Lord saying, God, work in Colossae, protect them from false teaching, allow the gospel to continue to spread, bring more people to the faith, grow them, mature them in their faith praying and praying, and God was delighted to answer that prayer. It's no coincidence that if you study church history, and you study the great awakenings and revivals that have happened, the predecessor in every single instance is a revival in prayer. That the church became convinced, maybe it was a revelation of the Holy Spirit, maybe it was through the preaching of God's word, but the church became convinced that the power to save people, the power for revival, is not in our creativity. It's actually not in our strength whatsoever. It's a power that belongs to the Lord, that he's the one that saves, that he's the one who could sweep through Santa Barbara and Goleta and the Central Coast in 2022 and sweep up a massive harvest of people. The church comes to a place where we just reckon with that reality. Yeah, we say we believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. Like last week, we talked about God has to open the door to people's hearts for them to receive the word. We say we believe that, but is it reflected in our prayers where we are just begging, God, you could do it. You could do it right now. And I was wondering this last week in my office as I was preparing this sermon, I was wondering, what if the revival that we so desperately desire in this church, but also we know in so many other great churches in this town, that we so desperately desire. What if that revival is just waiting to be unleashed on the backs of earnest prayer in the churches? Like if God right now is just saying, they're just not there yet. They're not depending on me and I'm going to continue to elongate this season so that they'll just get so desperate that they'll come to their senses and they'll get earnest and they'll say, God, I have people I love right now that are a mess and they need Jesus. Would you save them? Lord, our community is in distress. Our nation is in distress. Our world is on the brink of war. God, would you do a work, please, Lord, and just not get up until it happens? Every day coming back and coming back and coming back. Now, I don't know if that's what is actually going on in the eternal counsels of God. But I do know that there is earnestness in prayer that is required for gospel ministry. Number four, ministry requires forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, it does not take long for a person to come into the church especially if you were never raised in the church, to come into the church and realize that all these people in this church are not perfect. I remember when I got saved and I was 20 and I showed up to a very large church and everybody was so nice and so kind and I walked away and thought, that's a perfect community and I love it. And guess what? It was until it wasn't. Everything was perfect until it wasn't anymore. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, even among Christians there's sin and there's issues and there's problems. So let's just get this out there right now. Why don't you just look at your neighbor who's that, whoever's sitting next to you and just say, I'm not perfect. Can you do that? Now look at that same neighbor and say, neither are you. It feels like we had more energy saying the second one than we had saying the first one. There could be something to that. But it's just, it's the truth, guys. We're not perfect. We know that, of course. But we're all flawed. We all have problems. The Spirit of God is still having to work and refine us and make us more like Jesus. And so Christians, as we know, are forgiven people. We're not perfect people. Big difference there. And when you are in the church with each other and you're doing ministry together, there are times that a brother or a sister in Christ is going to sin against you or do something that hurts you. And in order for the church to be the church and for us to be effective in ministry, it requires that you and I exercise the maturity and the grace to forgive those people and to fix our broken relationship with them. There is a person on this ministry team list that the Apostle Paul needed to reconcile with. We find him in verse 10, and his name is Mark. He's the cousin of Barnabas. He writes this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, what does Paul say? Welcome him. Now, if you rewind a couple of years in Paul's life and in his ministry, what you find in the book of Acts is that Paul and Mark had a big falling out. Paul and Barnabas took Barnabas's younger cousin Mark on the first missionary journey that they took out from the church at Antioch. And guess what? On that trip, it was not easy, it was challenging, and Mark decided, I'm going home to Mom. That's a paraphrase, but actually a lot of scholars think that. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to go home. And he just quit on the team halfway through, and Paul was tweaked by this. And so when Paul and Barnabas start strategizing about mission trip number two, hey, let's go do it all again, Barnabas wants to bring Mark again. And Paul says, no way. There's no room for quitters on this ministry team. And the divide was so deep that Paul and Barnabas end up themselves separating because they just couldn't come to agreement over whether or not Mark could participate. So Barnabas takes Mark and Paul takes another missionary and they go their separate ways. And God in his providence and in his wisdom, he uses even our sin and our mistakes. And now the church goes out in two different directions and has greater impact on missionary journey number two. But the point is, there was a deep issue, a deep conflict, and there was no resolution in the book of Acts. Paul was tweaked, but that didn't last forever. Eventually, Paul and Mark reconciled. Forgiveness was extended, and they were able to work together and serve together once again. And now here in the book of Colossians, Paul's saying, listen, if Mark ends up coming to Colossae, you need to welcome him, meaning receive him as a brother. Paul is commending him that, hey, we are together, we're on the same team, we're all good. One of Satan's most effective tools for disrupting effective gospel ministry is to drive a wedge between Christians through unforgiveness. It's a divide and conquer strategy. One day we're working together, one day we have the same focus, We're serving Jesus. We have this mission in mind. It's all good. And then something happens. Sin happens because we're broken people. And Satan says, that's a great foothold. That's a wonderful opportunity. And he divides and separates. And all of a sudden, there's disunity and dysfunction in the body of Christ. He does this in your marriage, too. He does this in your friendships, as well. But all of a sudden, there's this division. And now, instead of us doing effective gospel ministry together, factions break out and there's divisions and God forbid there's church splits and all sorts of terrible things that do happen and guess what Satan is loving every minute of it because now instead of being focused with laser focus on the true mission which is seeing this community reached for Jesus Christ and seeing people reconciled to their God instead of being focused on that what are we doing? We're getting into our own little corners and we're being bitter and we're nursing old wounds and we're not being forgiven and we're saying, forget that church. I'm going to go find this other church and I'm going to do these things. And, and it becomes dysfunctional. No wonder Paul's great concern in the book of Ephesians was unity in the church. And so I wonder if there's a brother or sister in Christ that you need to forgive. And maybe this, this whole point, point number four, that the Holy Spirit's just been bringing a name right now just to you and just saying, hey, you need to address what happened between you guys and you need to work toward forgiveness and work toward reconciliation for my glory and for your good. Observation number five and let's close. Ministry today is no guarantee that you'll follow Jesus tomorrow. And this one's a heavy one. Ministry today is no guarantee you'll follow Jesus tomorrow. The very last person on Paul's ministry team that he sends greetings from is a man named Demas. You see him there in verse 14. Doesn't say much about him here. He's mentioned in other places, though. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Now, Demas was a well-respected brother and faithful minister and leader in the early church. But even though he started so well, his ending was a different story. At the very end of his life, the Apostle Paul was once again in prison. But instead of being on house arrest in Rome, he is now actually in a dungeon awaiting his execution. And the very last letter that Paul scribbles out and sends off before he is beheaded in Rome is 2 Timothy. He writes it to his young protege, Timothy. And here's what he says toward the end of this letter. This is 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Paul writes these words. You can imagine him sitting in a dungeon, knowing he's about to die. And he scribbles this down. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I mean, the words almost stick or your tongue almost sticks to the roof of your mouth as you just say those words. Come to me quickly, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. Demas deserted Paul. When Demas was or when Paul was in prison the first time writing Colossians, he was on house arrest, as I've said. But now he's in a dungeon and he's about to be executed. And for Demas, this second imprisonment of Paul opened his eyes possibly to just all that was truly at stake in following Jesus Christ. That this could actually end up in his death. And for one reason or another, Demas decided that the price was too high. Saving his own neck was more important than staying with Paul. And so he bailed and he took off to Thessalonica. Demas found himself in love with this present world or another way to translate this is, more concerned with this present life than with eternity. Now we would hope that at some point Demas came to his senses and he came back to the Lord and got his priorities right, but there's just no way to know. Now there are two takeaways from this. Number one is what I already said, the the way I titled this observation. The first thing that we need to take away is this, that Just because somebody's doing ministry today, no matter what level of ministry they're doing, just because they're doing that today, that is no guarantee that they're still going to follow Jesus tomorrow. And so for all of us, we need to always assess and say, am I growing in my faith? Am I moving forward spiritually? Not just, oh, am I serving? Am I doing these things? Because you can serve in the flesh. Am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I growing? That's what we need to pay attention to. The second thing we can take away from this, though, is this. We cannot put our hope in people, even leaders. Demas was a well-respected leader in the early church, and he became an apostate. Paul couldn't have been the only one who was crushed by Demas' apostasy. When this man who everybody looked at as a leader and a spiritual guide and a mentor walked away from the Lord and bailed on the Apostle Paul, I'm sure it was felt by many Christians. But we need to be reminded that leaders may let you down, but Jesus never will. Okay? And and just in my lifetime and in your lifetime, we have seen too many to count Christian leaders fall from grace for one reason or another, And so, and, and the problem is, every time that happens, there's a whole batch of Christians whose faith disappears with them. Because the problem is that we have a tendency to so elevate people that are doing ministry, so elevate somebody who's serving the Lord, that we start to not just put respect toward them or say, hey, I'm going to imitate them, but we actually start locating our hope in them. And our faith becomes intertwined with their faith. And so when they fall, we fall with them. We have to to avoid that at all costs. We cannot ever put our hope in a person. No matter how godly they are, no matter how gifted they are, we put our hope in Jesus because Jesus will never let us down. So we should respect, trust, and imitate spiritual leaders, but we do not put our hope in them. Jesus is the only one who is strong enough. He's a rock that will never, ever be moved. He's the only one. And so we build our life and we found our faith on Jesus and Jesus alone. Okay, let's wrap this up. We've seen ministry is a team effort. Ministry is centered on the gospel. Ministry involves earnest prayer. Ministry requires forgiveness and reconciliation. And ministry today is no guarantee you'll follow Jesus tomorrow. So what about you, friend? If you're a Christian here today, where are you leveraging what God has given you for the work of the gospel? What are you doing right now and saying, Lord, this is who you've created me to be. This is how you've gifted me. These are the things that are at my disposal and I'm giving them to you. I'm serving you. I'm leveraging this for kingdom purposes. If you have great answers to that, awesome. Keep on pressing forward. If you don't, explore that. And be open to exploring that in community with other believers. If you're not a Christian here this morning, can I just tell you that God loves you? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, That he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The whole reason why Jesus has not come back yet, the whole reason why the church is still on planet earth and not in glory, is for people just like you. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you are not a Christian here this morning, God cares about you. And more than anything else, what God wants is he wants to draw you to repentance so that you come to a place where you declare Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to follow him with my life and I'm going to trust him with my soul. And you might say, you know what, Daniel, I've got questions. Or, Daniel, I, I, have, I have doubts that I'm wrestling through. Or you might say, I have, I have sins in my life that I don't think I could give over to God. I don't think I can move beyond that. Friend, that's understandable. But God is not intimidated by any of that. God has been rescuing people like you and me from sin and from death for thousands of years. And he is still rescuing people today. You know what? This room of people right here is a bunch of people who are sinners and who are broken and who don't have it all together. But are right now being rescued by God himself. And all we want to say to you, if you're not a Christian here tomorrow this morning, is we would love for you to know the God that we love and serve. And we would love to see you open your heart and your life up to God and say, you know what? I can't save myself Would you rescue a guy like me or a girl like me? And guess what? If you pray a prayer like that, if you have a posture of heart like that, you're going to find that Jesus is going to forgive you of your sins and the Holy Spirit is going to come into your life and he's going to start transforming you from the inside out. And that is our earnest prayer for you this morning. Let's pray together.